and welcome back to Vox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Hannah and Katya. How's it going, guys? It's been a minute. <laughs> <laughs> been a minute? Since when? I mean, I, mean, this is, this is, I lose track. So. It's, been like a, it's been like a month and a half since I've been on, actually. Oh, wow. <sighs> yeah. And Katya had never disappeared from any episode whatsoever. Nope, you were always there in our hearts. You were here two weeks ago. You were fine. <laughs> Actually, you might have been on last we week. I don't... Beforehand, we'll, just, we'll never speak of it. I don't even... Like, I seriously lose track of what's on every show. Like, oh, who's on idea. every... Um, Steph was on two weeks in a row last week, and I was like, how long... Steph, it's been... Oh, wait, no, you were here last week. Um, that doesn't usually happen with guests. <laughs> I mean, as we've discussed before, time is an illusion, you know. Um, particularly <laughs> ever since the pandemic, especially, like, time is meaningless, so. Especially, but, like, in podcast time, we, you know, we're a nonlinear podcast. Like, time is extra meaningless in this context. That's true. We could have recorded this eight months ago, and you have, actually, we couldn't have recorded this episode eight months ago. No, I think <laughs> Not this episode. Oh, but, I mean, parts unless, of it. Unless we can predict the future. I mean, I, some of us did predict Well, some of us did predict the future. <laughs> That note, what are we talking about, guys? Okay, well, okay, imagine this. Maybe the Imag- fastest transition we've ever made. Yeah, imagine a story about how science is not driven by the truth, but by greed. That Earth as we know it is being reshapen, possibly to the point that it will be no longer be suitable as a climate for humanity. About how universities no longer offer, yeah, sustainable pathways to research. It yep, argues that people, at, without thinking about long-term consequences, act. A story that touches on the desperation of workers beholden to their bosses who hold all the power. A story that knows the inherent violence in which has been broadly called Western civilization and its knowledge practices. A story that knows global capitalism harms the most vulnerable. And, of course, I'm talking yep. about the classic 1990 novel, Jurassic Park. So, oh, I, I thought we were talking about my Twitter feed. I mean, y- yes. <laughs> I, like, I reread the novel for this episode because, as you probably figured listener when you clicked on it we're talking about jurassic park and all the offshoots i reread the novel and i was like oh so this was written well at least it was published in 1990 and like michael Crichton wrote versions throughout like the 80s and like (laughs) i think it's more relevant today than it was when it was published he basically described as a 1990 baby he basically described my adult the progression of my adult life yeah i mean and like reading it during a pandemic dinosaur wait a second yes (laughs) New oh, you, know, you haven't seen the newest movie, so yeah, you could be. <laughs> yeah, wilder than it is, but maybe also okay, not. So, so okay, so we should slow down because so we're talking about Jurassic Park, and we're talking about all things Jurassic Park from the novel through the movie, which has been out for a week now. As by we the record. movie, you mean the new, like the sixth installment, Jurassic World Dominion. But also yes. Jurassic Park, the original movie, yes. Yes, I guess I should have, yeah. From the original novel all the way through the most recent film. That's what we're talking about today. And when you you suggested this, you wrote a blog about it. I did. And I want to welcome back to the show because our guest for this is friend of the show, Amy Hummel. Hey, Amy. Hey, Matt. <laughs> so this was fun because Hannah wrote the blog. And I don't know, it was probably out like maybe an hour or so. And then I guess Amy read it. And then she immediately started texting me thoughts about it. And I'm like, I've never read this book. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I knew there was a book, but I'm like, I, I was like, I think you really need to talk to Hannah because I don't know anything. <laughs> like, so behind the scenes stuff on the show. So, welcome back, Amy. <laughs> 
Great to be here. I think the last time I was here was like six months ago. So it has been a little while since I've been here. Okay. So. <laughs> I'm glad yeah. you keep track because I have no idea. I, <laughs> it was Christmas. So yeah, I had thoughts about Jurassic Park. I read it when it came out back in 1990, 1991. I was in high school. I was applying to colleges to be a biology major. And it was like super cool to me to read it. And like Hannah, I went back and I grabbed the copy that I still have off my bookshelf. And I didn't read the whole thing because I've had life the last Fair. couple of days. I skimmed it and I was reading some of the stuff and I was like, wow, that like kind of sort of really turned out scientifically. And that sort of didn't at all yet because I did end up majoring in biology and doing some of the things that yeah. you see in the movie. Did you clone dinosaurs? <laughs> I did not clone dinosaurs. That was not on the syllabus in my 1995 lab class, nor was it on the syllabus. My youngest daughter, my one who has never been on your show, she just graduated high school and she took a biotechnology class this year. And I went back and looked like she did stuff in 60 days in high school that we didn't even do in a full year as biology majors in college 30 years ago. That's she can how be on the show. If she wants to come tell us about cloning dinosaurs, she can come be on the show right now. She <laughs> did not clone dinosaurs. If they're not making their own hyper-capitalist theme park by high school, how will they ever well, succeed in the world? I mean, that she did. She just didn't clone <laughs> dinosaurs. Saber <laughs> tooth tiger, right? I'm so glad that you're on the show because you actually have a background in science. And I thought we should, I really was thinking when we were doing the show, I need to do a disclaimer. Like, we're not going to talk about how realistic Jurassic Park is. We're going to accept, you know, when that resonates the moment. Because, you know, what do I know about science? That's beyond the 19th century, which, by the way, the concept of dinosaur proper, 19th century, everybody brought it around in under 10 minutes, I think. That wasn't bad. No, that's, that's yeah. bad. which is actually mentioned in the novel of Jurassic Park. But like, you know, this isn't like a show. We're not going to do what the scientists do every time there's a Jurassic Park not movie that comes out and say, well, here's what they got wrong. Um, not know Neil deGrasse Tyson this movie. It's like, I just, I, we'll link in the show notes. It, it drives me nuts sometimes that like, they're like, well, you know, the, the movies are just throwing all these dinosaurs together and they like weren't even in the same period. And like, I get it. Like, that's Jurassic Park. I, I actually don't because the entire point of the movie is that we have brought yes. the dinosaurs through time. Yes. Right. So in fact, yeah. any historical yeah. accuracy is meaningless. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, 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 and the movies like, Yes. We're actually clear about that. All even yes. the original movie is very clear about that. Yes. Again, okay. So because that's the thing that I know about from you know all these articles. You know, hey, hot take. This is dumb because the brontosaurus and the tyrannosaurus didn't live together on the planet at the same time. In fact, the tyrannosaurus lived closer to now than it did to the brontosaurus. Like, yeah, we know that's, that's not what not, the movie's about. The there also aren't there also aren't dinosaurs now, which is kind of a point of the movie. Like yeah, so much yes. of the science just breaks down immediately. This is not a movie about science. I also yes. like movies where people get bit by spiders and get powers. That doesn't yeah, happen I, either. I, I get why scientists want their moment to be like, hey, public, here's a little bit of education. But also, like, the whole point of the movie is that, like, they're mixing and matching <laughs> irresponsibly right. without thought. So, like, mm -hmm. you know, humanities a little bit sometimes can be a or, help. Or just even, like, understanding that art and reality are different things. Yeah, also yeah. that. Yeah. Complicated concepts. But Jurassic Park, I think, is probably one of the lynchal pieces of science fiction is from, it? like, the 1990s. I mean, I think, but I'm not the science fiction person. Okay. I think 
Okay. You, I could provoke you into speaking. Well, I'm thinking about this, and I actually don't disagree. And I'm trying to figure out if I'm wrong about not disagreeing. I don't know. Because I think, well, okay, is it the most influential piece of science fiction for sci-fi nerds? Yeah. Argue, I think that's a more tenuous claim. But, like, I think one of the interesting things about Jurassic Park is it is a, like, whenever basically something goes wrong and we're like, the scientists thought about whether or not they could, they didn't think about whether or not they should. Like, whenever one of those moments happens, Jurassic Park immediately is the cultural referent we go to. And, like, from that standpoint of influence in terms of what kinds of stories we use to articulate our experience, yeah, I would be hard-pressed to think of another sci-fi film from the 90s that's more immediate in terms of, like, that reference point. And I think part of that comes to what you were saying is that despite the fact that the novel came from the 1990s, it's a very much now story, and seemingly increasingly so. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with that. I don't know that I agree with it, but I'm not going to disagree with it. I could quote. I'm just looking through the 1990s sci-fi films, the you know, the best of the box office. And I mean, it's up there. Like, certainly, I'd say it's more influential to our today science than say total recall is but you know i would also argue that you know you know johnny mnemonic was the 1990s that's, that's, that's true. Like, also 1990s influential <laughs> with staying power but also handmaids but that's not yeah. that's another show like just the staying power of jurassic park mm-hmm. and it just means so many things to so many different people because like i will get back to the capitalist thing we've been hinting at early on in this conversation but like, i did write a blog that was like look at it it's capital about capital and amy you actually said that like when you originally read it you thought of it in it from a totally different perspective right i think i remember writing that yeah i know that is exactly right it's so true i never i mean high school me did not like consciously make that linkage but we won't talk about how old i am now me looking back at it <laughs> you're 25 yeah. just like you're the else. same age as i am so you're 25 um, oh, okay, there we go. perfect <laughs> Yeah, I think yeah, what I actually wrote as I am, so. is we can be whatever age we want to be. <laughs> I think what I also actually wrote was point the, to whole, the current film. <laughs> yeah, the whole problem with scientific progress is that scientists, or at least some of them, really do just want to see if it's possible. But of course, some unethical fuck is going to come along and immediately find a way to profit from it. Yeah, which the novel, which Emily like uh, that ties it to Campbell. But you know, in the novel, Hammond says, and I will, I'll read a quote out for our audience. Yeah. And I promise to Michael Crichton's estate, I won't read the whole novel this episode but this is john hammond talking about why he decided to make a park full of dinosaurs and he's talking to henry Wu, who if you've only seen the film is the main like geneticist behind jurassic park hammond says bd wong's character yes yes you'll remember hammond said the original genetic engineering companies like genetech and cetus they were all started to make pharmaceuticals new drugs for mankind noble purpose unfortunately drugs face all kind of barriers fda testing alone takes five to eight years if you're lucky even worse there are forces that work in the marketplace Suppose you make a miracle drug for cancer or heart disease. Suppose you now want to charge $1,000 or $2,000 a dose. You might imagine that is your privilege. After all, you invented the drug, you paid to develop and test it, you should be able to charge whatever you wish. Do you really think that the government will let you do that? No, Henry, they will yes. not. Like people no, are, no, I, yes. <laughs> which, yes, yes. Which also I would love it if you only yeah. charged $1,000 yeah. a dose. Yeah, exactly. Six people are going to pay $1,000 a dose for needed medication. Ha ha ha. 
that the haha was me. They won't be grateful. They'll be outraged. Blue Cross isn't going to pay for it. I mean, we will be outraged. So something will happen. Your patent application will be denied. Your permits will be delayed. Something will force you to see reason and sell your drug at a lower cost. For a business standpoint, that makes helping mankind a risky business. Personally, I will never help mankind. Now, think about how different it is when you're making entertainment. Nobody needs entertainment. That's not a matter for the government intervention. If I charge $5,000 a day for my park, who is going to stop me? After all, nobody needs to come here. And he goes on and on about how the reason he made Jurassic Park is to make a ton of money. Like Hammond is not a Walt Disney character in the book. Book Hammond. He, yeah. Okay. Yes. He wants to make a ton of money. And when the park fails, he blames his employees one by one by one. Nedry, the guy who is the person who like is in charge of the park security system. And if you recall from either the film or the book, shuts it down, helps cause the chaos that leads to the disasters and everything to go wrong. In the book, it clarifies that Hammond holds power over Nedry. And when he's unhappy with Nedry's work, starts like bad-mouthing him to Nedry's other customers and puts him in a bad position. And that's why Nedry is willing to turn on Hammond. Hammond also doesn't really like his grandkids that much. And also the reason why Grant and Sattler are willing to go to the park in the book is not like set up as like a joyous thing. Oh, we're getting more dig money. That's so exciting. Like it is in the novel. It's the fact that like they need patronage and Hammond is a patron. And so they owe him. So, and even the first line in the novel is the late 20th century has witnessed a scientific gold rush of astonishing proportions, the headlong and furious haste to commercialize genetic engineering. So it's all in all talking about commercialization of science and this sort of like how ethics are being changed because of what you can make money off of and what you cannot, like what you can and what you cannot, which I find fascinating that so much of so, this is there. I'm really interested in like Amy as the scientist of this yes. podcast, apparently. Like, because <laughs> at face value, like, I, I, I have not read the novel, so I'm assuming that there's some satire involved in there of like, that there, nope, that just seems not correct. Um, you could absolutely charge stupid <laughs> quantities of money for medicine. It was, well, wait, hold on. This is 1990. Yeah. yeah, you could, but I mean, regulation. Like, I, I think he right, like regulation is different. But I guess, I guess, I'm just, yeah. like in broad strokes, like how much does that ring true to what it feels like the perspective of the average scientist, if that is such a thing that we can talk about in terms of how it was in 1990 or in terms of today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I know it's a lot different now. I don't know all of how it was all done back then because that wasn't really my job then. It's slightly more my job now because I guess I'll just give the disclaimer that I work in biopharmaceutical regulatory affairs, which means working with the FDA to get drugs approved, studied and approved, although nothing to do with pricing them. But you're the awful people that, that he's complaining about in that paragraph. People I mean, who are trying to help the people who she's yeah, on his side in, the, in this. Well, analysis. I'm the people at the company who right. give the stuff to the FDA. But I mean, I tell the people in the company like, no, the FDA needs you to show this and do that and give them this data. So nobody likes regulatory affairs, basically. That's fine. I mean, the science, again, I only re-skimmed book, but the like the bits that I read and certainly what they show in the first movie, it was fairly accurate, you know, with some speculative extrapolation, right? Because like, mm -hmm. 
when they made the movie, they weren't just making everything up. And like, I remember some of the parts, like when they're showing in the movie, the, the little kind of like Disney tour ride where they're showing and the little DNA guy pops out and explains stuff, like showing the scientists doing stuff like that is stuff we did in lab. But <laughs> it was all very, you know, this is like kind of your typical speculative science fiction where it's like taking what we know now and then like extrapolating mm-hmm. out three or four steps. I mean, all of that stuff that he, he said, I mean, that is that is absolutely the drug company world now. I mean, we know it. I mean, prices of drugs in the United States are right. ridiculous and it is mm-hmm. blamed on the costs of R&D. But does that sort of answer your question? Yeah. No, it does, because it's like, I mean, I think it's one of the things is like, I've also studied earlier science fiction, but I was really interested in like scientists' attitudes around like the atom bomb. And basically like, that's one of the, you know, one of the examples we have of like scientists coming together to try and basically convince the world that this was unethical and that we shouldn't be doing it as a society. And they were unsuccessful, as we know. Yeah. I was right. Um, that we can get into. But like, I think that, like, that's the thing I was curious about is it's like, do like, I feel like in the humanities conversation around like ethics and capital and things like that is it's not to say it's more i guess it's like it's closer to what we actually study on the day-to-day so i feel like there's mm. a more robust conversation around it whereas i imagine when you are studying say dinosaur dna it's not part of the subject matter as such so i was curious i guess like how much of a like robust conversation is there around like the influence of like capital or you know other cultural forces on science and like how much that's a i guess pressing conversation if that makes sense yeah i mean other than obviously drug pricing comes around every now and then i mean the place that i think of those discussions today are around things like i mean it's it started with prenatal testing but now it's like should you CRISPR fetuses mm-hmm. or embryos and, you know, treat, you know, the ability to treat a genetic hereditary genetic defect that way. And then what do you then choose to do? And it, there was the scientist in China who did it and he did it under the radar. He didn't tell the scientific community that he was doing it until the babies were born. There wasn't, you know, ethics board reviews and all that things that you normally have with clinical research. Um, and you should tell people what CRISPR is. It's gene editing. So, sorry. (laughs) I actually knew, Um, but but go ahead. I, yeah, I should point that it's snipping out the bad gene and replacing it with the right version. So, if we're going to say that PCR is like Xeroxing genes, this is like word control, control X, control V. So, for just, I did put in the show notes, there's a link to an article by the New York Times about when the price of drugs started skyrocketing exponentially, which is in the 90s. So it's after Jurassic Park came out. It was 97. It looks like between 97 and 2007 in America, Mm. drug prices like basically start tripling every year. So so it's yeah. So that would be a lot. That would be after the book. Speaking of, you know, using gene therapy on human patients in the novel, the and this goes into the second novel as well in in the Lost World like sequel that Crichton wrote, not the film, which Mark Schulten left a comment that mentioned that there's an extension of a greed motivator multiplied from the first book that the company employing Dodson sends him to site B and Dodson for those of you who have only watched the movie you, you know you get that line from Nedry we've got Dodson here like yelling and you know he's a competitor but you don't really know what who it really is there is a rival Jeanette corporation to engine called the Biasin corporation and in quote like Lewis Dodson is the quote most aggressive genesis of his generation or the most reckless 34 balding hawk face and intense he had been dismissed by John Todd 
Hopkins as a graduate student for planning gene therapy on human patients without obtaining the proper FDA protocols. Hired by Bryson, he had conducted the controversial rabies vaccine test in Chile, which is documented earlier in the novel, where he like uses tests a rabies vaccine on poor Chileans and takes advantage of like overseas regulations not being what they are to conduct unethical testing. So there there is like talk about like gene like human gene editing in the first novel as well. There's a lot in the first 90 pages of Jurassic Park, the novel, that the movie can't fit in and be a good movie, right? But we lose some of the themes of the novel in editing it down in a certain way, unsurprisingly. Which, try, which are kind of shoehorned into the later films in different yeah, yeah, films, actually, different amounts. Some Sometimes better than others. Yeah. <laughs> we should talk about the movie because the first Jurassic Park movie is one of the like best blockbusters. I think I can say that. I can make a judgment for everyone. It's launched a billion dollar franchise. It's produced yes, you know, loads of true. merchandise. <laughs> Jurassic Park, like like Michael Crichton didn't write sequels, right? Like generally speaking, that wasn't his thing. But he was convinced to write a sequel to Jurassic Park, partially because the movie did so well and they wanted to make a sequel, which became The Lost World, which some of us might think was a mistake. We could take a vote. Did anyone enjoy Jurassic Park 2, the movie? No. (laughs) (laughs) They literally raised a character from the dead. He's not dead in the movies. There is a character, if you only read the first book, it is heavily implied he is dead, and they raise him from the dead. You're talking about Ian. Yeah. Okay, I mean, I'm not even using the spoiler warning, and this book's from 30-something years ago. Okay, so in the first Jurassic Park book, Ian Malcolm, okay, I guess you never see a body, but he dies. (laughs) Jeff Goldblum's character dies. I know that part. I've read that part. He does not die in the movie, but he very clearly dies in the book. But then Jeff Goldblum was the only person who signed on for the sequel um, of the major cast. So they knew he had to be alive. So therefore, he had to be in the sequel novel. So the sequel novel opens up with, and I know this, even though I've not read it, opens up with Ian Malcolm. It's amazing what they can do with science. And then it just continues, not just ignoring the fact that he was eaten. He wasn't, wasn't eaten. I'll say he wasn't okay. eaten. So it's like he, like, it, he was much, dead. He was dead. But like not, <laughs> it's amazing not what they can like, do with science. But not like Chomp Chomp, like <laughs> the lawyer in the first movie. It's not, yeah. It's sort of like Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones, where like you think he's probably dead and but you're like never sure because like he dies off screen and it's like but is he coming back though i didn't see a body anyway yeah so they like literally raised malcolm for the dead for the sequel they didn't follow the book really they just like made up some characters and also they somehow made jurassic park 3 eventually and then jurassic world That's, and those jurassic, jurassic park 3 is not a movie that doesn't count as a movie movies have requirements of like in order to <laughs> I, I will acknowledge that it i will acknowledge that it is media that exists on film i will give them that but a movie implies a story a story implies that there's a beginning a middle and an end there's a beginning i don't know film nerds that i feel like would argue the point but point taken i think think jurassic park 3 is a character study of the man alan grant and there happens to be dinosaurs i'm not arguing that it's good i'm not arguing there's a talking raptor but it's probably a dream but maybe not and you know there's no end to it because they literally 
ran out of money making it and they're like fuck it just release it <laughs> that's <laughs> it is so bad <laughs> and also we have the jurassic park slash world rides that have been in the theme parks at universal the fun fact the i believe now defunct river cruise in the jurassic park world at universal studios <sighs> islands of adventure was based on a river cruise ride that's in the novel that like you can see in the film like some like sketches that they like plan to like release the ride but mm. It doesn't make it into the movie, even though it's featured more heavily in the book. So we have a whole franchise based on dinosaurs, yes, but also th this usually popular thing that really like, like I, I watched the film and I don't think the film has a strong as capitalist critique as the, the first movie. novel, the original film. No. Yeah, the original film does not have a strong, like a strong, as strong as a capitalist critique as the book. Like the greedy capitalist figure is displaced from Hammond, who's, you know, the capitalist who holds the means of production to use the academic phrase onto the greedy blood-sucking lawyer to use mm -hmm. the film's phrase. phrase. Yes. And Hammond is treated more like that Walt Disney figure who's like, Donald, I want this to be open for everybody. And Donald's like, we could have a coupon day. And of course the T-Rex eats him because, you know, whatever. But like, it's interesting, right? Like the lawyer who is like trying to hold Hammond accountable becomes positioned as the bad guy in the film. And what then emerges is more of the heavy critique on science and the like unchecked knowledge and the lack of thinking, the could versus should line, if you will. But also, like, weirdly, I was watching the film and I was surprised to see the line about Discovery being a, like, violent, penetrative act actually made it into a movie in the 90s. What? Well, I think we're in the 90s. Oh. I, true. But I'm not, I was surprised that they were, like, that people were so willing in the mainstream to criticize Discovery and, like, so, like, like you know, like, scientific discovery. Yes, scientific discovery. Huh. Um, I wonder, uh, Amy, I wonder how you feel. You and Hannah are going to be who've seen both the book and the movie and Katya like me you've only seen the films right yeah Amy did you feel that way about as well I mean did you also think that the book is more critical of capitalism because to me the one thing that all six films have going for them and my one compliment that I'm even willing to give the third film <laughs> is that is is that it is at least trying to be a critique of the capitalist system I will argue that the first one and actually the sixth one do it the best, but I will I at least think it's trying. Well, I'm not going to say it's not there, of course. I'm okay. saying it's not as strong as the book. Like, the book is just like... And I can't say that. That's why I, asked, you know? that's why I was wondering yeah. how Amy thought about it. Um, I, It did not process in my 16-year-old brain, but the bits okay. that I reread, I agree with Hannah. I think it's str stronger in the book than it is in the movie. Okay. I imagine, like, and I don't know if this is really the case, but, like, I think it's also really hard to make a massive blockbuster, especially sci-fi film, because as we talked about before, sci-fi is one of the most expensive genres to create. Right. I feel like it's also... Like, for books. I mean, for for films rather for films right for film, for, books. Yeah. for film because of like the special effects involved the set design sometimes even the costuming mm -hmm. like it is far and away the most expensive genre especially i think actually that's maybe less true now as like special effects technology is getting well actually eh, uh, well, well depends on how good yeah it's, it depends like now mm -hmm. it's like it's easier to make a more affordable sci-fi movie but especially at the beginning like the like earlier days of like really special effects heavy right. film like it's just it's so expensive like right but the jurassic park movies also six of them are about spectacle right they're the, about spectacle and it's i think it's also hard like in film i think it's harder to have a capitalist critique in that genre in film just because of that fact right like and in, in a way i think it actually like shifts the entire like whether
other like less like the circumstances of the film i feel like shift that narrative because like in order for a sci-fi film to profit it has to be a movie that does not just like well but honestly like pretty damn well which means it has to have that universal appeal and i imagine even in, i mean in the 90s it's like having a super strong like anti-capitalist thread is i would say it's not possible but like i think it's harder because you need to have the film have mass appeal and then also have whatever argument or like thread or theme it's going to have so for just to be clear jurassic world dominion has a reported budget of 185 million dollars doing movie math that means the break-even point is probably somewhere between 460 and 500 million it's going to make it because it's at 435 as we record probably closer to making it by the time this episode releases but just to be clear breaking even for this movie is like 460 million dollars world worldwide like that's a, a lot of cash just to cover what katia is saying right and that probably i mean i don't have the figures at hand but like that was probably that math was probably even more extreme for the original movie i can tell you, so if like, you... a lot of hollywood studios tend to be fairly risk averse in terms of like gambling that a film is going to make it like in my mind it's like they're going to be risk averse around like if a theme or a narrative is likely to turn off a significant amount of the audience they're probably going to tone it down just to make it more palatable and therefore more mainstream. Oh, budget on the first movie was $63 million in 1993. $63 million breaking even points probably around 180. Right. To be fair, it made one, it made a billion dollars. It was one of the like, right. billion movies. So. And to like your point about speculate, like, like not speculate, just to your point about spectacle, spectacle, like the one thing that I've heard people talk about behind the scenes of making Jurassic Park, including Crichton, by the way, who was a script writer. So it's interesting to see how he like worked with another person and Spielberg who changed his own story and like cut it down and like shift the themes around even if some of the lines stay true between book and film but like, they talked about like, the dinosaurs like the dinosaurs have to look good and mm-hmm. to be fair I think that the original dinosaurs in Jurassic Park look much better than say the dinosaurs in Jurassic World the original Jurassic World because a lot of them you know they use a lot of practical effects and like they used mm-hmm. you know like rain and the trick of the night to like shoot the T-Rex but like it was expensive and in fact at times dangerous because I, I, mm-hmm. I think I read a story where like someone like down the t-rex's mouth so, but yeah so you know like there there was a spectacle element and like you're supposed like you're supposed to be enchanted with the dinosaurs i'm giving away my age in that i was a little kid when the film came out i wasn't even born yet barely when the book came out and i begged for years to, for my parents to let me just watch the vhs of jurassic park and my parents were like no this is pg-13 we're not stupid <laughs> one day when i was like five or six they gave in but they waited till it was super late at night so I fell asleep when they found the sick triceratops, right? So like I only saw like the nice like spectacle. Yeah, when, when like, the movie was still wholesome. Yes, uh, like the, the enchantment parts of Jurassic mm. Park, um, which is a very different story um, than what happens pretty much right after that. It is, but I think also what that's one of the interesting things about the movie, and is that like I the appeal of Jurassic Park. Is that, though, we were talking before we started recording about, like, a lot of the Jurassic Park movies aren't good, but they're fun. And, and are you, that's... only one of them's good. I think only but, two of them are fun. Sure. <laughs> but, like, the reason you go to see a Jurassic Park movie 
I would argue, is because you're going to watch some dinosaurs eat some people. Yeah. And there's like the loud, especially just like, I'm thinking of the iconic scene in the original one where it's like the T-Rex like stomping noise and the ripple in the puddle kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like the noise in and of itself is just, even without the visuals, it's spectacle enough to just be like the inner kid that like, I don't know, because everyone I feel like as a kid has a dinosaur moment of like you are just into a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I feel like there is something about Jurassic Park that always gets at that element of wonder of the special effects and the sound and the noise and like the fact that every, because it's like, it's pulpy as hell in the sense that it's like, it's, it's a monster movie. So like, yeah, there's a critique of Capital and all sorts of stuff that like, to greater or lesser degrees, but like at the end of the day, it's Jaws. Being huge of that appeal is just like <laughs> large monster eat people, yeah. <laughs> and like, but it's the same reason you go see the like, you know, in the fifties you go see the like swamp thing movies. I want to talk about the chomp chomps. Actually, I'm, do- I'm I guess, using the term of the chomp chomp. Yes, I'm using that phrase specifically. Shout out to Josh because I asked him before I came on what are the themes of Jurassic Park, and he said some smart stuff, and then he said, and also chomp chomp. So important. <laughs> like so, like in the first film. Specifically the film, a lot of the people who get eaten or at least brutally attacked by dinosaurs are like villains, right? Like the movie sets it up for us to be like, yeah, T-Rex, you get that lawyer abandoning those kids who's been a jerk. Or like, mm-hmm. yeah, or like Nedry, like he's mean to the Dilophosaurus before it like poisons him. And it's like, well, you were super annoying and mean anyway. And you mm-hmm. were bullying little Walt Disney, Mr. Hammond, who just wants to bring like joy to children, which is a very interesting inversion from the book situation, as mm-hmm. I and then you know like and so people like feel a sense of justice about who gets chomp chomped but there's something very interesting that happened in jurassic world with a dinosaur death in that there if you recall jurassic world and i'll just recap for like our listeners who may be like hannah it was a forgettable movie i don't want oh, to no, but, well, well who's seen the jurassic world movies because i've I saw one of them movies. okay i've Yes, I've seen. How many of them are there? Three now. There are now three as of this week. Oh, God. I definitely saw the first one. I think I've seen the second one. I have not yet seen the third one, obviously. I've seen all three of them for the first time within the last 24 hours. Oh, wow. (laughs) You'll know exactly what I'm talking about, Matt. And everyone else. We know that Katya is a sucker for monster movies. I'm like, I don't care how bad it is. I will watch Dinosaur Nom. And I'm sure as I describe it to you, it will come back to you, which is in the first Jurassic World movie, which, by the way, Mm -hmm. I find it very interesting that a middle manager, Claire, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, is given like the full Hammond suit in the first film, is given like the negative traits of Hammond in the book. And she's like a middle manager. Once again, no, like, I mean, Hammond's in the book. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Okay. like the, ha- the nasty Hammond characteristics <laughs> in the book she's given in the Jurassic World film and the like sort of CEO character is seen as like a cool visionary and Claire just doesn't care about anyone or anything and she's just super mean and uptight and she bullies her poor assistant I find it very interesting they displace all these like negative things onto a woman that's not what we're going to talk about right now who's also a middle manager keep it in mind but her assistant is at one point brutally <laughs> attacked <laughs> by Oh, Mav, you know. Um, She's brutally attacked um, by... 47 pterodactyls. Yes. Yeah, and she is throwing like like you know how like pigeons will like throw like rats or whatever up and down and like on the concrete to kill them in the air. I, a- I did not until this moment, and I'm horrified. <laughs> so so she's like you know thrown up and down and like caught, and then they she's like hung out over the ocean, right? And she does have a fairly graphic death. Yes, yeah. as far for this film. And then Zara, the assistant, is devoured by the Mosasaurus, who's the 
water dinosaur who they treat like is at sea world like a killer whale doing tricks she's just like brutally <laughs> attacked and she's like not a bad person she hasn't done anything wrong and ev- like everyone she's a bad babysitter she's an absentee babysitter but like it's not to be fair, it's kids are like running away. the kids were trying to ditch her but you know you're the babysitter you have one job i mean now to be fair she shouldn't have been babysitting she's an executive assistant she's got yeah. better things to do she did not sign up for this and like you know Claire was just kind of a bitch to her and was like, hey, you're going to go take care of my nephews because I can't be bothered with family. So, you know, Claire was kind of in the wrong to put Zara in that position in the first place. But she did lose a couple of kids in, in the dinosaur park. So, you know, we're and she's gotten no. Not, no not, yeah, but not her fault. I say that like this, of course, I would argue thinking about it. This makes total sense because. Jurassic World, talking about spectacle, to get back to your point, Kata, all about spectacle. Like, they genetically engineered dinosaurs to be greater than they, like, ever were in real life to, like, recapture the iPhone generation's attention or whatever they say. But, like, Capital doesn't usually come after the gross CEO. No. Capital is cruelest to those most vulnerable to it. Like, so, so, of course, like, the dinosaurs who are a part of this, like, park system, of course they're going to attack the poor worker. Makes total sense in the world of capitalism i can't believe i'm just in jurassic world but that's my take on the chomp chomp also they just wanted graphic death Um, yeah the thing is i would in all of the most recent three jurassic world films though the gross ceo is certainly not innocent and gets chomp chomped at the end of each of the three movies so i know okay i can't so uh, so i'm gonna give a little bit of clarity here the Jurassic World movies, which again, at time of recording, I've watched all three of them in the last 24 hours for this episode, because just so you don't have to, this is what I've done because I love you, the listeners. I've watched all of these films, um, just have them fresh in my mind. I The character names are not terribly memorable, so I'm going to refer to them by actor names. So... <laughs> <laughs> so Katie McGrath is the assistant. What was her name again? Zara. Thank you. Katie McGrath goes on to play Lena Luthor in Supergirl. Wonderful actress. She gets chomp chomped, right? But the evil executive guy of note in the first Jurassic World is played by Vincent D'Onofrio, who probably our listeners know best as uh, the He's not the CEO. He's He's the, not the CEO. He's, he's yeah, but he's the theory. Yeah, he's but he's the representative he's the only representative of big corporate that we have. Nope, nope, it's Ifran Khan who's the CEO of oh, he the got eaten too. Yeah, oh, he, he, oh, he got blown up. He got eaten. He got yeah. blown up. But he was. But he's a benevolent CEO. He's yeah, like exactly. Just kind that's of what a, I'm saying. He's the yeah. CEO. Like the CEOs until mm-hmm. Jurassic World Dominion, for oh, the yeah. most part, are benevolent. It's like some like underling worker where the most negative. I see what you're saying. Placed onto them, you see. Yes, yeah. because the actual CEOs are trying to be benevolent and starry eyed, like like John Hammond in the first film. But they're but. Jesus. Lockwood, is that the guy's name in the second film? He's an assistant. He's not a CEO. Isn't he? I thought he was the... It's, I thought Lockwood's character was CEO. Oh. He because he he was oh, working sorry, sorry, with sorry. him. No, no, sorry, sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. I was thinking it's of the, yeah. the villain. Yeah, I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, sorry. Yeah, Lockwood gets yeah. Lockwood. Okay, so Lockwood gets smothered by his assistant, and he's not. He's Lockwood's not evil. He's a grandfatherly old type. Just you know. And then in the third movie, the CEO is evil, and not only is he evil, he is Tim Cook. 
Tim Cook of Apple <laughs> is the bad guy in the third film. I mean, it's not the actual Tim Cook. It's a guy that they've hired to play Dotson, who was in the first movie played by a different actor. They did not ask him back because he's a sex criminal now. Mm-hmm. And so they recast the role and they recast him with some actor who looks a lot like Tim Cook. And they wrote him to be exactly Tim Cook of Apple, but evil, like thoroughly evil. He is the cartoon of the corporate tech CEO in 2022. And I, that's why I think this movie is supposed to tell us to be afraid of, you know, Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook. Like, that's what I think the message is supposed to be of this movie. So I think it's very I, anti-capitalist. Yes. Uh, like, the, the most, like, I think uh, that Colin Trevorno actually read Jurassic Park, the book. This is my theory. I think that he understands what the major themes are. I think he's not very good at following through and like making something coherent. And I think that's true for any film he's ever made. He also things like Safety Not Guaranteed that critics actually liked, but I thought was meh. That's not the point. Really? Oh, I love that movie. Um, Go ahead. But like, I think he understands Jurassic Park to some degree. It is what it is, but he does understand that capitalism and greed are a part of this. And I, I think that Fallen Kingdom accidentally became a pandemic movie or maybe it's just I watched at the end of the pandemic because like the dinosaurs get free and it's like well we're gonna have to live with them now and that was the time when everyone was using the rhetoric of oh we need to learn to live with COVID and I was like oh of course and I predicted this movie I want to say like and this movie I mean Jurassic World Dominion I predicted it was going to be a pandemic movie I called it the movie of our current timeline when I picked it in the box office game I said it was the relentless march of capitalism and I was right (laughs) and in the first 10 minutes and I won't spoil it you can just see how big of a pandemic slash our current moment like everything from like skyrocketing food and gas prices it really is and i annoyed josh within the first 10 minutes of just like broadly gesturing at him like see i told you so i told you so josh meanwhile (laughs) was doing a count of how many times chris pratt would put his hand up and try and stop the dinosaur how many he counted eight really it seems like hundreds (laughs) (laughs) it seems so Um, much like hundreds yeah so so that's my my so my defense of jurassic world is somehow in terms of capitalism it gets closer to the novel and i think in reading the novel so closely to seeing dominion i was like oh someone read the book there are some references here that the movies actually never picked up on despite them like referencing other stuff in like the lost world because if you remember the lost world opens with like a young girl on the beach and she gets attacked by tiny little dinosaurs that's actually at the beginning of jurassic park the book (laughs) (laughs) i don't want to go back a little bit to like a thing you guys were talking about a minute ago which was like in the movies the ceo types are like benevolent whereas it sounds like in the book they're more overtly kind of evil. Oh, they're totally evil. Yep. So I think one of the things I was thinking about is like, I actually think in some ways, I don't know, it's not that it's a better critique of capital, but like it's a different one because I think like part of the takeaway from the films of Jurassic Park, which sounds like it's different from the movies, is like because the scientists and the CEOs and whatever generally tend to be benevolent or at least just like driven by curiosity to a fault is like, I think the message that gets across is that like, it doesn't matter how good of a CEO or good of a business person you are in this system, you will ultimately do this. You will fall down this trap, which I feel like is actually like, I get that it's not the original point of the, of the movie and maybe it's less like explicitly anti-capitalism, but I guess to me, like resonates more with like the actual problem that we're experiencing in the sense that like, is Jeff Bezos a good person? No. 
But like, especially when I think of like things like the more recent, like Google AI problem, so Google's like mm-hmm. been making AI for a long time. And like there was this whole news story. I can't remember if it was this week or last week off the top of my head. But, this, um, well, it was last week as the listener hears it. That basically like Google thinks that they maybe built a actually conscious AI sort of. AI at Google thinks, yeah. <laughs> right. There's some details to that. And basically, it, as I read it, it basically boils down to an AI made a compelling argument based off of what it could do with language and someone has attributed basically has taken the leap from compelling argument to sentience which i'm sure every rhetoric person on this podcast will be like not so fast but but to me like that's a really good illustration and i think a lot of things that have happened in tech mm-hmm. like if, if we step away from the ceos there's a lot of engineers i have encountered some of them personally that, that have the jurassic park problem if they get really interested in an idea or a problem or a technology and it's like let's see how far we can take it and i think ai is one of those, those things where we're starting to have a conversation in the last couple of years about well maybe we can what should we like why do we want what problem is a sentient ai solving basically mm-hmm. and what are the costs of a sentient ai and are we actually going to have this conversation as a society are we going to regulate this are we going to have this conversation but there are also a lot of people who are like going like no this is pure discovery why would we not do this and we're like like have and, and, and like people i've seen people bring up in like the twitter threads and things like that like have you seen jurassic park people so okay here's why i think it's interesting so i am linking in the show notes the washington post article to the google situation Okay, so first we should be clear, just as a disclaimer, Google has not created a sentient AI. The guy who is afraid is being stupid. And we know that for sure. Like now. That said, what makes the Google thing interesting is, you know, they had a guy looking for it. He became concerned. He sent up the food chain to, you know, programmers and philosophers and theologians that Google had look at it. And they all said, no, it's not sentient. It's just fooling you because it's, you know, that's what it's designed to do. And but like they did take the problem seriously. And it's a news story because the guy who complained does not believe them. He still believes. So what happened was they created an AI that could fool somebody because it is based on natural language processing, blah, 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 blah. But anyway, my point being the what Google is doing right here, and I'm not necessarily the biggest Google fan, but in this situation, what Google is doing is right because they have people in the employee whose job it is to look at these solutions so that it's not just rolled by greed, which is not to say that if they do create sentience, they're going to they're going to actually do the right thing. They might not do it anyway. But I think that the thing, though, is it's like, I mean, I think it's more it's like, yeah, they did the right thing. I mean, Google has a mixed track record on whether or not they listen to those people. Right. Um, But they are trying to. Mm-hmm. They are trying. I think it's more like, I mean, I think this is the interesting, the, for me, the more interesting question is like, who gets to decide like what's appropriate? Because at this point, like Google, let, let's say in a bizarro world, they actually had a sentient AI and mm-hmm. like there is a profit, like they can do a Jurassic Park in the sense that there's some wildly profitable thing that they could do mm-hmm. that may or may not endanger society. Let's right. assume that as a scenario. Like we are just believing that Google will make the right call or whatever. Right. And I don't. And I, think and I don't. More, right. And that's the, to me, that's the more interesting thing is it's like also it's like the thing i think one of the reasons that jurassic park is so interesting is also like the thing that was profitable wasn't like a useful project it wasn't we made the cure for cancer and we charged 10 billion dollars for it it was Mm -hmm. we made a theme park well okay so that's where i was getting that's where i was going because what you're talking about now is actually the plot to jurassic world dominion believe it or not i'm not saying it's a good movie so so let's not go crazy and hannah you watched it this week as well i finished watching it as we record you know an hour and a half ago so i literally came from it to here to do the show in jurassic world dominion ian malcolm jeff goldblum's character 
His job is now I am the philosopher working for the corporation to make sure they don't go crazy and put greed ahead of, you know, common sense ethics. Right. And then he determines that they are. And then the company does the wrong thing and fires him. And then everything goes to hell. But that's the plot. Right. So the answer becomes listen to the scientists, listen to the to the philosopher, listen to, you know, listen to the academics is like the message, I guess. And yet also complicated by the fact that a really different character in that the Malcolm of the movie, especially a movie in which Crichton is no longer involved because R.I.P. But the Malcolm of the book actually doesn't think that science itself is an answer in itself. Like he, you know, talks about the attempt to control, you know, like like people believe that science was objective, but it's not necessarily. Science is a belief system that is now hundreds of years old and like the medieval system before it, science is starting not to fit in the world anymore. Science has attained so much power that its practical limits begin to become apparent. Largely through science, billions of us live in one small world, densely packed in air communicating, but science cannot help us decide what to do with that world or how to live. Silent Science can make a nuclear reactor, but it cannot tell us how to build it. Science can make pesticide, but it cannot tell us how to use it. And our world starts to seem polluted in fundamental ways, air and water and land because of ungovernable science. That much is obvious to everyone. And he, Which is also, know, just to get a token here, like, mm-hmm. I referenced earlier, like the scientists that mobile like basically tried to raise the awareness of like the potential damage of creating an atom bomb and the ongoing ramifications of the atom bomb in society and they basically that was the argument like everything that was just said was the argument and they were literally asking basically like scientists can't tell you these things and actually funny story about that so malcolm continues now what we know that what we call reason is just an arbitrary game it's not special in the way we thought it was we are witnessing the end of the scientific era science like other outmoded systems is destroying itself as it gains its power it proves itself incapable of handling the power because things are going very fast now 50 years ago everyone was gaga over the atomic bomb that was power no one could imagine anything more yet a bare decade after the bomb we began to have genetic power genetic power is far more potent than atomic power and it will be in everyone's hands it will be in kits for backyard gardeners experiments for school children cheap labs for terrorists and dictators and it will force everyone to ask the same question what should i do with my power which is the very question science says it cannot answer and then malcolm says all major changes are like death you can't see to the other side until you are there so he likes to mention the atomic bomb a lot and i don't you know i it's interesting you know it doesn't entirely surprise me because like i mean and i'm this is not an area of expertise for me i mostly got interested in the movement of scientists around the atom bomb because of isaac asimov i think i've mentioned the show before asimov was interviewed by several major papers after the dropping of the atom bomb he has this really great quote about how basically science fiction are a bunch of whaling like calls science fiction authors a bunch of whaling cassandras and that basically and talks about the idea that like sci-fi is sort of like a canary in the coal mine like sci-fi is making arguments about the next thing the next disaster that's coming based off of what's going on in science that, like at a given time especially because at this point in history the majority of science fiction writers are still people who have some background in science like if you think even a little bit before asimov like in the pulps the majority of pulp editors had phds in the some of the scientists, so it's predominantly a genre by scientists for scientists, at least in certain sectors. There's obviously other movements in sci-fi. Anyway, we'll leave it at that. But part of the reason I got interested in that is, like I said, it's not an area of expertise, but it's one of the like first examples where there's like massive mobilization of scientists around a social issue in the way that we see now with things like like climate change. And they had in many respects the same problem that, for example, like scientists complain about now around climate change, is that basically people don't listen to the scientists. And my take on that as a person who's read about this but is not an expert is like what seems to have happened is and this is I think about this a lot around science fiction I feel like science fiction always kind of reveals the idea that the fact
facts speaks for themselves is bullshit. You need to be a compelling storyteller in order to make facts do something in the world. And I think that's one of the challenging things as an academic is it's like, well, how do you take like, how do you take your ex deep expertise in like nuclear energy or in genetics or in whatever and make an ethical argument when ethical arguments are not the thing that you are expert in? Which I think is why it's really interesting in Jurassic Park. Like it's the intersection of science and philosophy. And this is true, not just of the sciences. This is true of every academic field. Like the farther we get and the deeper we get into various fields of human knowledge, the harder it is to have expertise and experience and skills in many fields. And so like you get more and more siloed. Whereas like in the early days of science in like the 19th century or before science was even what we recognize as science today, like most scientists knew philosophy. They knew logical arguments. They knew how to do all of this stuff. And that's just not true anymore. And it's not the fault of any individual person. It's just like now, I remember I used to attend a lot of like science and humanities like overlap conferences and like like talks at my university. And one of the things I found really interesting is that there's a cultural difference between a humanities department and what my understood to be true in like say a biology department. So Amy, I'd be really interested if this is, sounds right to you, at least because this is just my experience and observation, is that a humanities department as an academic, you are expected to have some ability to connect with your colleagues. So even if I am a specialist in 21st century literature, there's a general expectation that I know enough about say like Shakespeare, Shakespearean studies to be able to have a meaningful conversation and be able to connect across like fields and disciplines and things like that. Whereas one of the things I noticed is that it seemed like at least folks in the sciences is that they were equally as specialized, if not more so than humanities folks. And there was not that same expectation in the sense that like once you got to that depth of specialty, it was like you were speaking different languages. And I was like, that has got to make it so hard. If you're specializing at that depth where like your work is not just intelligible to like a lay person or somebody in a completely different field, like a person in humanities, but even with other segments of like, say in biology or chemistry, I'm like, it's got to be so hard to have an ethical argument, even if that's a skill set for you around ethics, because you are living in a different world conceptually than the people you're trying to convince that makes any sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And I've been out of like being deep in the science because I moved over to industry. But I think that is the sense that I have. Like, I mean, I'm talking with like docs all day long, like medical doctors. And sorry, I just totally heard that you talk to ducks all day long. And that was <laughs> a very lovely and wholesome image. And I'm just going to now hold in my mind that you're talking to ducks and lab coats. So please continue. <laughs> my meetings tomorrow are going to go very interestingly because I'm going to be picturing everyone as ducks now. I'm going to do that in my meetings. And I don't talk to <laughs> I don't talk to doctors or ducks. So. Yeah, it's I mean, everything is so hyper specialized. You're right. It is that way. I think it does make it hard to speak across. And it's also this challenge of like, and I've experienced this as an academic who's now works in industry research is like one of the things you have as an academic, and I imagine this is equally true of like regardless of field, is you have a shared reference point. So it's like, the, like what I said, like the facts speaking for themselves is bullshit. That's not entirely true. Like if you have a common reference point, like if I talk to Mav or Hannah, we all, like we have different opinions about many things, but we have common reference points. So I can, you know, say something like, I mean, oh, like, what, like I could say the word hermeneutic and it means something to them. And I think it makes it easier to have these conversations. Whereas if you just if you start having an argument about ethics or about like what's right or what society should look like and your point of reference, whether it's a scientist or humanist or whatever, is so different from the other people you're trying to have a conversation with. It's just really hard to find that reference point. I'd push back a little bit, though, in that. I think academically, and by academically, I'm talking about even including, say, this show, right? This show, a pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis, right? We have 
gone out of our way to sort of cultivate that as a world and also the three of us literally hannah yourself and me we're all a relatively similar discipline even if we're at different segments of essentially english studies right like we're we approach it differently but at least we're in if we were hired by the same university we would be in the same department monica would not be wayne would not be many of our guests would not be and that's you know that's sort of by design of our show right but like i don't know that in the academic world outside this show i don't know that it's quite as interdisciplinary among humanities as it is just within english departments right like i don't see a lot of people necessarily trying they're not particularly interdisciplinary right actually i've seen actually a conversation on twitter ongoing with people who can't consider themselves interdisciplinary like struggling to find permanent positions because the universities are so siloed into like traditional Mm -hmm. fields and disciplines and they're hard to get yeah yeah. it it makes it hard to get published it makes it i mean this was true of my own work I i can't tell you how many times like I've applied to journals and they were like, we should absolutely publish this, but it's not for our journal kind of response. And I've heard that from so many different people. Right. You that's why I'm that, like some number of those are people just trying to be nice. But like some of that, I think, is also real. Well, I think it's the problem that you were speaking to and that these films speak to. Right. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, okay, not, I'm not going to use dinosaurs. I'm going to use something completely innocuous. Right. I have seen arguments just in, you know, in arenas that I have played in. I have seen I've had a similar argument about some cultural theory with cultural studies, people like ourselves, with theologians and with philosophy people and all three groups being completely unaware of the work going on in the other groups as though cultural studies people don't know what theologians do. I mean, what does he mean? Is he a priest? No, that's not what they do. But it's weird. Right. And so. I mean, probably there should be more crossover. Interdisciplinary work is right, is nice, but like that's not where money comes from and the universities care about money too. Yeah, well, funny thing you mentioned that because I swear one of the last ones I'll do, but mm-hmm. <laughs> another reading from Jurassic Park. You want a university appointment? Yes, that's a mistake, Hammond said briskly. At least if you, you respect your talent, Wu had blinked. Why? Because let's face facts, Hammond said, universities are no longer the intellectual centers of the country. The very idea is preposterous. Universities are the back water. Don't look so surprised. I'm not saying anything you don't know. Since World War II, all really important discoveries have come from out of private laboratories. If you want to do something important in computers or genetics, you don't go to university. Dear me, no. Wu found he was speechless. Good heavens, Hammond said. What must you go through to start a new project? How many grant applications? How many forms? How many approvals? The steering committee? The department chairman? The university resources committee? How do you get more workspace if you need it? More assistance if you need them? How long does that all take? A brilliant man can't squander precious little time with forms and committees. Life is too short and dna is too long you want to make your mark if you want to get something done stay out of universities and of course there's that whole like thing that's unfolded since the 90s that makes this even more of a problem with the whole like erosion of tenure track jobs but (laughs) jurassic park knew that universities weren't separate from capital and that there there was a lot of problems in universities and they weren't like a haven from industry okay was that ever true no but i think that but you know people believe it like i once heard someone declare that the tenure track position in the university was the last great form of socialism (laughs) 
for, yes, folks who are not familiar, for folks who are listening who are not familiar with academia, the reason we're all making a noise is this is like there's a, there's an element of reality to that of like once you get a tenured position, you are technically protected from certain kinds of things. On the uh, other okay. hand, you only <laughs> right technically sort of in reality, meh, but also like you don't get to be tenured by creating. Let's show. There's we no say, tenure like, fairy where you don't drop your diploma on pillow and go to sleep and then wake up. That's not how it works. Yeah. Also, I, well, and this is more true of some fields than others, but like it's also depending on the institution. I remember like when I was early in my career listening to senior scholars talk about tenure and basically talking about the fact that like you give up a lot of freedom in what you talk about in order to chase tenure. Like you have to do certain kinds of research to get tenure. And then by the time you get tenure, the desire to do original or controversial research, like that part of your career has passed because like tenure track jobs and academic jobs in general go to people who are doing what is expected in that field. Because like we were talking about, it's the same problem as interdisciplinarity. Like universities are really good at supporting the kinds of work that they already do. They have a hard time supporting work that is outside of the scope of what is like what is done in that field, which kind of makes it silly to rely on tenure or academia in general to be the thing that like promotes this kind of like what I'm going to call true intellectualism for the lack of a better word is not to say it doesn't happen, but that's not really what universities are well designed to do, even if you believe that's the intention, which. Ugh. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and also with the erosion of like tenure track positions and like being well, able to get a gra- yeah, and being able to get a graduate degree is certainly much harder if, say, you don't come from inherited wealth or the lack of diversity from like people being able to stay in the academy. For instance, we lose work in the field. Like, how many dissertations that could be revolutionary sit unread because people are told don't read dissertations, read published books, but people will never have the opportunity to publish on their brilliant research because they've left academia, so they don't you know starve to death on an adjunct position. That's that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So That's like world. which, you know, it's interesting to me to take us back is that Jurassic Park tackles everything from the university to modifying food sources genetically to, you know, just casual sexism in the academy, which we didn't talk about and probably don't have time to the fact that humanity is polluting the planet, changing the makeup of the planet. And in Ian Malcolm's words, last one, I promise, life on Earth can take care of itself in the thinking of a human being. A hundred years is a long time. 100 years ago, we didn't have cars and airplanes and computers and vaccines. It was a whole different world. But to the Earth, 100 years is nothing. A million years is nothing. This plant lives and breathes on a much faster scale. You can't imagine its slow and powerful rhythms, and we haven't got the humility to try. We've been residents here for the blink of an eye. If we're gone tomorrow, the Earth will not miss us, and we might very well be gone, is Jurassic Park is saying. And he points out that even though the planet might not be in jeopardy, we, humanity, are in jeopardy. All of this is like in this novel, and it feels like kind of chaos and like everything's all happening at once and it's still coherent and powerful and i kind of wonder if jurassic world dominion and, and i guess mav you're the one who's seen it so i want your opinion if part of the reason jurassic world dominion is not chaotic is because it tries to tackle so many things that there is no powerful narrative thrust in the same way as the first film that's extremely tight and cuts a lot of things down because it's the chaos of our moment and the film is sort of responding to that even if it's not doing a great job I think that the reason Dominion works is, and this is a criticism that I usually throw out because I usually think it's a cop out. A lot of times when a movie critiques poorly, the fans retort with, this is a movie for the fans because they're like, if you're not a real fan, then you wouldn't really enjoy this movie. And critics don't know what this is as a movie critic. Should I think of, I, I think saying that I, that we're media critics on the show is fair. You know, we might do it a little different way, but as 
course, people who talk about movies. I'm a fan of movies. I love movies. I love movies so much that, you know, this show exists, right? <laughs> like, and I, you know, I you review You make us play the box office game. Yeah, every- because I, and because I love movies. I want every movie to be good, right? And, and I think most critics, like if I give a movie zero stars, that hurts me because if I paid money to go see something or even if I got to see it for free on like somebody's dime, I was supposed to review it. I'm investing my time in it, right? I want it to be good. So it hurts to be negative, to be bad. I don't like giving bad reviews to stuff. So if I dislike something, it's because I really dislike it. This movie wasn't good. It like it didn't follow the rules of good filmmaking. It, it was just but this was just fun. And I think more so than Fallen Kingdom, I think tried to do things that I think it thought were deep and they weren't. The first Jurassic World very much tries to go, what do people love about the first Jurassic Park movie? Let's just give them that, but bigger. We'll just do a lot of the same story beats. And Jurassic World is very much a nostalgia film. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom tries to bite off more than it can chew. And then Dominion has themes. It tries to make a point. Trevor Road does the thing that he's doing. But mostly the movie is not afraid to just be dumb and fun. I think one of my favorite points of the movie is there's a part where they're having like a really philosophical discussion. Ian Malcolm's trying to, he's trying to do his thing, you know, one of his speeches of, you know, should we do this? You know, if we could versus we should, and what's the place of man and extinction and, is that a dinosaur on your shoulder? And then Chris Pratt goes, yeah. And he's like, oh, and it's just goofy and stupid. And I could not stop laughing. And everyone else in the theater was too. It was delightful and fun. And like, you know, with all the capitalism messages and the things about, you know, the place of science, another one of the messages in Jurassic World Dominion is, but family, right? Families are good. And, you know, and also mothers love their children. This is a movie about a mother's love. A mother's love is knows no bounds. It's not about genetics, but it is about genetics. And, and also, and also, and it's, about, <laughs> it's also about like adapting to live together and cooperation. Which, like, which I find it, I do find it very interesting that so many movies recently, whether it be Eternals or Everything Everywhere at Once or Jurassic World Dominion, is like like somewhat what of like the final film's message is: Hey, the planet's not great. We should probably learn to like live together. You know? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, got no solution for this, by the yeah, mind yeah. you. Like, <laughs> critics don't like that there's no solution but you know what like is there like we're living in an age where it feels like there is no solution like we're just like watching the world be what it is you know like i think you can have no solution i think that critics don't like this movie because this movie is real dumb it's dumb (laughs) no worse than like many other things i think what i think is really happening Mm -hmm. is critics are conspiring against me they don't want me (laughs) to win the box office you're like, doing like, fine you're doing fine yeah. in the box office I, this movie i've had a lot of movies lately that were that like i was disappointed in. we've talked about how i didn't like i didn't like doc strange uh, yeah yeah and, you know some people did but whatever this movie if i had to give it a rating if you are going to force me into a five-star rating system it's it's two stars with an asterisk of this is a stupid movie but go see it anyway because it was just so much fun like okay uh, there's the the point in the movie where the little girl Maisie is her name the character's name uh, and again spoilers for this film spoiler alert whatever because 
because the plot is irrelevant. But the point of the movie where she jumps up and she sticks out her hand the way Chris Pratt always does. And it's just like, oh, she's doing the hand thing. Because in all three of these films, Chris Pratt's enduring character trait is that he sticks out his hand to dinosaurs sometimes. That's what he does. I, was just waiting, I just have been waiting for three movies for a dinosaur to go chomp on his hand yeah, anyway. Yeah, he's, it's his, he's a dinosaur trainer and his thing is he like it's his one move is he kind of sticks out his hand and he's like hey and there's a point where in this movie his adoptive daughter just sort of instinctively does it and you know and it works and he's like oh she's doing the thing I'm so proud it's so dumb it is so amazingly dumb the 40 50 people in the theater clap <laughs> like <everybody> was like, <laughs> it was just so stupid and everybody in the theater is like yeah it's just like and I'm like yeah I'm in this is and that's why this movie worked this movie worked because it has every theme it does not care that it's dumb like everyone seemed to be having a blast you know you, you sit there and you know Sam Neill and Laura Dern are in this playing these characters that they played 30 years ago going eh, you know okay we're really old now but Sure, we're going to do this movie where we're chasing dinosaurs and pretending that it's like that, like no time passed because Sam Neill's real old. And I'll link another article in the show notes. I didn't realize how much older than Laura Dern Sam Neill was when I watched the first Jurassic Park because they're, you know, they're romantic interests. But he's 20 years older than her and she's clearly younger than him in the first movie. But I didn't realize how much younger that she was in this movie. He's real old. (laughs) And it was more apparent that like oh he's probably too old to be chasing dinosaurs but i don't care and he went out there and he chased some dinosaurs because that's the kind of movie it is and it's just I like mean, harrison oh. ford's gonna be indiana jones next year so you know y- yeah whatever. i'm there for it yeah. i am so excited to see harrison ford running through the jungle with the whip and you know like hopefully yeah. complaining about well, his back <laughs> my, my my review of this film is sometimes the most satisfaction you can get is just being right about something so 10 out of 10 <laughs> no notes I give it 10 out of 10. I have no notes. It's not a one. It's not a just disclaimer for the audience. It is not a 10 out of 10 film. But go see it. (laughs) Hannah's lying to you. She's trying to win our game. I I don't think that that anyone in our audience for a second believes that (laughs) I believe that it's 10 out of 10 in the same way that I think LA Confidential is 10 out of 10. But nevertheless, 10 out of 10. You, you believe no it notes. in the sense that Cop Rock is great and that Riverdale's the best show on television. I, in that sense, sure. <laughs> yes. I, I will say that I think the dinosaurs look better in this film than they have in a long time. Like, overall. There's fewer, there's fewer dinosaurs in this one than there could be. But That's, they look better. Like, yes, yes, there's so restraint. What, like, let's be real. The first Jurassic Park movie, like, it had dinosaurs, but it, they spent a lot of time building up to yeah, yeah. the dinosaurs. So, like, you know, different kind of film. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying, like, I'm not going to say there's a hint of tension in this film in the same way that, like, Spielberg, like, tightly builds the tension in the first. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying 10 out of 10. No notes. It's we've really something nothing. special. I would even say We have resolved nothing. I think we've resolved that capitalism bad. Out of 10 scoring is probably also bad. <laughs> yes, it absolutely is. I think that numerical scores are stupid, but that's a different show. Shall we do something? But I would like to thank Amy for coming on and discussing Jurassic Park because this was really fun to have another book reader on. <laughs> As someone who understands science in a non-literary way. I don't know thank how you're having me. You can, you can close the show. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, well, I don't have any notes for that. So I give this show 10 out of 10. I once again have no notes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you to my co-host for letting me do this. I think that it turned out to be a more current show than some of you might have thought it was going to be about a 30-year-old book slash movie. I think Jurassic World is in tops in the box office this week. 
I don't know that it will be next week. Uh, next week, we might be back. Top Gun Maverick being the top. Yeah, like, pretty well. Light years coming out. Also, light like, years coming lots, up. Yeah. Lots of families were in my theater for Jurassic World because kids love dinosaurs. And honestly, Jurassic World Dominion, a lot less scary than we're back a dinosaur story. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. It, it, this was actually probably, I mean, not for very small kids, but this was a fine movie for. I mean, there people get eaten by dinosaurs, but in a fun way. <laughs> yes. So, so once again, go for the chomp chomps. Because what is this really all about? Anyway, you can't find me anywhere except yeah, the show. Right, right. Right. I don't know what I'm doing. It's been a minute. Uh, Amy, uh, would you like to plug in? I don't have anything. <laughs> we're gonna. We're just gonna keep this trend going with me not having anything. Katya, do you have anything you want to plug? I don't believe in. The existence of the internet. I want to know how you think the show gets delivered, but that's uh, <laughs> magic. No, see, actually, this is the thing. Is like I much preferred social media before hashtags, but it was fucking pointless. And so I'm going to choose to believe that this podcast is not broadcast. We just record it, and the only way we have <laughs> listeners is because somebody who's really dedicated to absurdity translates it into smoke signals. <laughs> wow, Mav, oh, you do God. a lot more work than I thought. So, yeah. <laughs> On that note, since you, since you work so hard to translate our podcast into smoke signals, do you have anything you'd like to plug? You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. All the places always at Chris Maverick. Usually I say more, but like I'm not running the show, so. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how this happened. Um, <laughs> you took all my notes. I didn't stop to ask if I should. Neither did you, apparently. Okay. So you can go to our website at voxpopcast.com where you can read blogs and see what's coming up next. Don't forget to comment on our blog posts. Sometimes that's dangerous because it gets you on this show. Maybe you want that. Maybe you're looking for a good time. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought for Music for our epic theme song that's playing us out ever so much more epic. I would like to tell you to follow us on Twitter at Box Popcast, and you can follow us on Instagram at the same handle. I and also Facebook because that's the thing that's still happening. Also, we have a YouTube channel, which maybe this episode will one day. I haven't put a YouTube up one up when I get to it. I've been really well, busy. One day. And, I mean, that's totally you know normal and fine. So you can find us on YouTube at slash Popcast, and you can subscribe to our channel. And you can ring the bell, I guess, and yep. watch old episodes that Mav visually enhances. So maybe one day this will be up there with some chomp deaths. Make sure you subscribe <laughs> on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. And you can leave us reviews on Apple. And you, can, you can't you can do 10 out of 10 no notes because it only is five stars, but you can give us five out of five stars no notes. There, I've written your review for you. So no, I give like us no notes. Actually write no notes. Five out of five stars, no notes. Make that the review. Yes. I really want to see that happen. Please, everyone write yes. that. So I would like to thank Amy so much again for joining us. I'd like to thank my co-host once again. I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for listening. Have a good night, everybody. Bye. 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 <laughs> The most underhanded actor ever. <laughs> I told you I had no notes. <laughs>